All right, boys and girls, moms and dads, this is the one you've been waiting for. This is the big one. This is the one where I finally lose my mind. I finally go off the rails. I finally just drop the bag of marbles and they go everywhere. So buckle up. Here we go. I'm schizophrenic and so am I. So first and foremost, I have to, well, first of all, uh, I was wrong. I was wrong about the Arcadia Invitational. It did go down. It, it did happen. Um, the results were n- uh, not what I had predicted because the Salmon Brothers and the Young Brothers did not run the uh, mile. I figured they'd have, to, they'd have to either double, either go mile to mile, or uh, maybe just, I don't, I figured they'd at least double. But what inevitably happened was they all ran the two mile. So that in essence is, uh, puts the kibosh on a sub four mile. But the final results of the 2022 men's invitational 3200 meters was won by Colin Salmon at 834.99, just beating out Lex Young, who ran 835.72. So those are, uh, I want to say, the third, third and fourth fastest two-mile, or excuse me, 3,200 meters. Maybe they're fourth and fifth all time. Uh, and then uh, Aaron Saul Aaron Salmon finished eighth. He was at eight forty eight. Eighth place was eight forty eight. Jesus Christ! So back in the day when I was watching the Masterleers, watching the results of the uh, Arcadia Invitational in eighty, what was that? In eighty six. They ran eight. The winner was 848. Now eighth place is 848. And then bringing up the, uh, let's see. Well, they had like, there was 30, 31 runners in this. Oh my God, it was a Bella Vista runner. Last place. Bella Vista. I wonder if it's the same height. It has to be. Bella Vista. Kid from Bella Vista, my high school, ran... He finished last at 9.06. 9.06 was last place. But Leo Young, the other young brother, he was way back, 26th place at 9.02. That's incredible. A Bella Vista runner? That's interesting. So I figured they would double. They, uh, they did not. They did not. But let's see. So who ran, who won the Invitational Mile? A kid from Rapid City Stevens. I don't even never even heard of that high school. Uh, he ran 407. 407.88. Simeon Birnbaum from Rapid City Stevens. I don't that's interesting. And uh, second place, wow, just barely won. Second place was 408 flat for the mile. But none of the young brothers, none of the Salmon brothers. Oh, this Jesuit kid. Uh-huh. Last place, 
in the Invitational Mile was a kid named Michael Volk. Vock, V-O-C-K-E, 427, from Jesuit, which is just down the road from... Oh, there's another Jesuit. There's two Jesuit kids. Eighth place was John Schuler, 414, from Jesuit. Interesting. Wow, eighth place was 414 for the mile. But that kid, Colin Solomon, ran four, a 403 anchor leg in the 4x1 indoor. So there you go. I was wrong. I was wrong. But, uh, Jesus, 4 or 8. 8.34. My God. So he ran back-to-back four, 4.17s, which would have placed him ninth in the uh, men's invitational one mile. So there you go. There you go. Life goes on, though. And this weekend, I not this weekend, Thursday night, I believe, I um, got into this series. My son is, uh, he's a, Mar- he's a, I guess he's kind of a Marvel guy. Yeah. Eh, he's also a DC guy. He's not exclusive to either side. Because I think his favorite uh, superhero is uh, Flash. That's DC. But his second favorite is this guy, Moon Knight. Moon Knight. Which they just started a series on on Disney. And I'm not a, I'm not a binge guy. I'm not a series guy. I'm not a guy that binges series. I'm not... I don't... Uh, if I watch anything on Disney, it's like old school stuff, you know? I was watching like the Three Caballeros the other night with the fucking a parrot and Donald Duck and uh, shit. That's what I watch. Like, I'm fucking, I'm out, I'm out of, uh, out of the loop, um, on the latest of anything. But, uh, there's something, I don't know, there's something kind of, uh, intrinsically, uh, that p- pulled me in, like, gravitationally just pulled me in. And, uh, but I, he goes, so my son goes, you know, check out Moon Knight. You know, watch that and, uh, and let me, let me know what you think. So, so the first episode is interestingly, it's a bunch of sequences that, um, it kind of, it, it doesn't, it doesn't create, it doesn't start the backstory or the or origin story. It, it kind of pre-sets up the origin story which starts to take shape I guess in the second episode there's only two, they're out every Wednesday now so uh, but Moon Knight's a fictional character appearing in um, American comic books published by Marvel Comics okay his first, now and I don't know again, like there's so many fringe there are so many fringe characters that um, something about the Marvel characters that it uh, the more obscure the character it would seem the more fervent of following they may have like for example my son and Flash like Flash isn't everybody's first pick not by any not by any stretch of the imagination but but if you look at like uh, if you go to like Reservoir Dogs if you watch Reservoir Dogs 
in one of the scenes with Tim Roth when he's rehearsing, uh, you know, getting into character to be a, uh, uh, you know, a, a jewel thief to get into character as a, because he, he's a, he's a, he's a, in the movie he's a, uh, he's a rat cop. He's a, he, he infiltrates a group of these, these thieves, these, uh, well, these jewel thieves. And in the background, but in in the in his room in his apartment, you see a poster of the Silver Surfer, which is, and everything that Tarantino does in a movie is very deliberate. So like the, all the Roger Corman posters that are in uh, the Jack Rabbit Slim's restaurant in Pulp Fiction, you know. So the the mere fact that there's a poster of the Silver Surfer in the apartment is pretty is is a pretty thorough explanation as to Tarantino's favorite I would guess I'm assuming it's his favorite superhero character but um but yeah the more obscure the marvel the more obscure the the comic book character I, I it seems like there's like there's a fervent following for everything for everybody but what really, what I found really interesting as I delved into it was the backstory. So, and shout out to uh, Oscar Isaac. Man, that fucking guy can act, dude. Like his English accent, he plays this English guy, um, Stephen Grant. But what's really fascinating is he has like, and I'm kind of jumping ahead here because I'm looking at, I'm reading up on the character, not not in lockstep time with the series itself, but but just the back the overall backstory is um, this guy who's got evidently he's got three alter egos or four altogether. Stephen Grant, who you see you're introduced to in the first episode. Also, he has Mark Spector, Jake Lockley, who who becomes Mister Knight, who's in like some all-white tuxedo as opposed to the all-white kind of mummified, caped crusader that he also becomes. And then there's some inner child alter ego. Like, what is going on with these guys? What was this... What were these writers doing? Um, So, his abilities are that he's an expert detective, proficient in martial arts and armed combat, Utilizes high-tech equipment, and he has mystical visions, okay? Um, but his increased strength, speed, and endurance depend, depend on the lunar cycle, okay? So he, in essence, is kind of like a... Uh, he's like a schizophrenic Batman, okay? So he's a, he doesn't have any supernatural abilities, actually. He's got. Uh, he's just a. He's, he's just a regular guy. But the real mind fuck is um, just the uh, the disassociative identity disorder that he displays, which is fascinating. Um, which they make a note of saying that it is incorrectly referred to as schizophrenia in some stories. But it's. Uh, but it's. It's revealed pretty early on in the. Um, first episode that he's got a disassociative identity disorder. Um, the backstory, of course, is he's the son of a rabbi. 
Okay, this guy, this other uh, identity, Mark Spector, uh, served as a Marine and briefly as a CIA operative before becoming a mercenary alongside his friend Jean-Paul Frenchy Duchamp. So during a job in Sudan, Spector is appalled when fellow ruthless mercenary Raoul Bushman. So there's already a good wild backstory here with a, him being a ruthless mercenary and then having cohorts that are also ruthless CIA operative and mercenaries and uh, military backgrounds. They kill our, uh, an archaeologist, uh, Dr. Allrain, in front of the man's daughter and colleague Marlene Allrain. After fighting Bushman and being left for dead, a mortally wounded specter reaches Allrain's recently unearthed tomb and is placed before a statue of the Egyptian moon god Khonshu. Specter dies, then suddenly revive, revives, fully healed. He claims Khonshu wants him to be the moon's knight, the left fist of Khonshu, redeeming his life of violence by now protecting and avenging the innocent. Uh, while early stories imply Spectre is merely insane, it is later revealed Khonshu is real, one of the several entities from the other void, a dimension outside normal time and space, once worshipped by ancient Earth people. So there's a wild like connectivity with the Egyptian uh, creation of symbols and pyramids, and you know, which also has kind of a weird link to. Um, Atlantis, which has this weird connection with all these different, um, uh, you know, astrological and uh, explan uh, explanatory ways to um, make sense of, of, I guess, our where we come from, or um, I don't know, maybe that's a bit of a reach, but but once, uh, but. Uh, <laughs> But as it's later revealed that Khonshu is real, this kind of, and Khonshu is kind of like this weird character, this kind of like large-beaked character that carries a staff, one of the several entities of the other void, uh, this dimension outside of normal time and space, uh, that was once worshipped by ancient Earth people. So, so it's a weird kind of l loop of sorts, this kind of time-space continuum loop, continuum loop that... Uh, on his return to the United States, Spectre invests his mercenary profits into becoming the crime fighter Moon Knight. So, aided by Frenchie and Marlene Arlone, Alrune, Alrune, Alrone, Alrone, who becomes his lover and eventually the mother of his daughter, along with his costumed alter ego, he primarily uses three other identities to gain information from different social circles. Billionaire businessman Stephen Grant, although in the uh, first episode of the series, he's portrayed he well he identifies himself as a, a gift a gift he works at a gift shop. Okay, so there's a little confusion there, uh, but it's I'm sure it's setting up the bigger story. Uh, but uh, but uh, the other identities are that uh, there's uh, taxi cab driver Jake Lockley and suited consultant. Mr. Knight. Okay. It's later revealed Moon Knight has dissociative identity disorder. Incorrectly referred to as schizophrenia in some stories. Okay, so so there's this heavy looming kind of uh, like a pal, a pal, a pal, P-A-L-L, a pal of, of uh, schizophrenia 
it kind of hovers over you're kind of confused you're kind of confused in the first episode because there's it when he blinks or closes his eyes or goes to sleep and wakes up he, he, he he's somebody else he's in another place he's done he's doing something else uh he's in another situation but um but the other subsequent identities who do not assume the Moon Knight identity have emerged at other points during his adulthood, including a werewolf-fighting astronaut, impersonators of Khonshu, Spider-Man, Wolverine, Captain America, Iron Man, and Echo, a red-haired little girl known as the Inner Child, whoa, uh, who first appeared in the Ultimate Marvel continuity. So... In most of his stories, Moon Knight has no supernatural abilities beyond occasional visions of mystical insight. He relies on athletic ability, advanced technology, expert combat skills, and a high tolerance for pain based on willpower, training, and experience. Since becoming Moon Knight, there have been multiple occasions when the character has died only to be resurrected by Khonshu, implying he may now be effectively immortal until the moon god's protection is revoked. Whether Khonshu has limitations on how often he can resurrect Spectre is unknown. For a time, Moon Knight's strength and resistance to injury could reach superhuman levels depending on the phases of the moon, but this, this ability later vanished while the Moon Knight identity, identity is occasionally depicted as an independent alter of the others. So... Um, yeah, in essence, it's like uh, Moon Knight is more or less the concept of what would happen if Batman were to have disassociative identity disorder. So that led me to like listening to, uh, I guess there's a place in art there. Well, of course, there's a place in art for a lot of this uh, schizophrenia, for um, disassociation, disassociative identity disorder, um, pers- uh, you know, just common personality disorders um it's so prevalent i mean it's so ahead of our time because back in the day you know if you had some kind of disorder like a mental disorder you were like uh well in the case of the kennedys you got lobotomized uh, i mean you know back in the 50s you didn't you just didn't understand like autism didn't didn't nobody you, you didn't know what autism was and you didn't know what um schizophrenic well schizophrenic like those guys were locked up in asylums you know and they were given like uh saltpeter you know to calm their uh calm their uh their desires you know uh keep them from you know beating off all the time and um so i don't know if it's by happenstance or just by pure accident or by divine intervention that I started listening to, uh, I think the next day, Friday, I was, uh, I started listening to, uh, Lex Friedman's pot. Uh, he's an AI specialist. Um, and he had this guy on, um, who's a psychiatrist named Carl Dyseroff, who's, um, this real, this brilliant, um, psychiatrist. Um, I believe is he, is he a Stanford is he a Stanford dude? You one of them Stanford dudes, bro? Let me see. So, Carl Dysadoff. Carl. Um, oh, shit. Damn. Lex Friedman came out with a... He's got another podcast with Rick Rubin today. Oh, shit. I gotta listen to that, too. 
But what he, uh, but in this one, Carl Dysroff, uh, he's a professor of bioengineering and psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford, which is where um, Andrew Huberman is the, he, um, he's a professor of neuro, neuroscience, neurobiology. So they're colleagues, obviously. And then I also listened to a, uh, an old lecture with Robert Sapolsky on, on depression, where he was at Stanford uh, giving a, it's like a 55-minute lecture, um, which um, kind of reverberates in, in what, uh, basically, like, Huberman, because I, okay, because then I listened to Huberman, uh, I, I re-listened to one he did on depression, and it's linked to uh, cognitive uh, dissonance and, and, and so forth. Um, but the one in regard to, uh, well, the, the link up, the connection between Carl Dyseroth's, um, conversation and then Robert Sapolsky's original lecture on depression and then Andrew Huberman's Episode number 34, I believe it is. It's either 32 or 34. I think it's 34. On depression itself, spoke specifically, kind of aped Sapolsky's lecture that he gave, which is on YouTube. It's very good. Just if you look up Sapolsky, S-A-P-O-L-S-K-Y, depression. He, you can't miss him. He's this giant bearded. He looks kind of like, he, he looks like Bigfoot's dad. You know, if Bigfoot's dad, like, sat in, like, a, had his own chair like Archie Bunker and, like, you know, was a little gray and just kind of complained a little here and there. But, um, but he talks about serotonin in the, in the synapses, the SSRIs, um, which is the uh, serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors, you know, like Prozac and fluoxetine and... Um, and how stuff like creatine and um, certain um, like EPAs, like uh, essential fatty acids, like krill oil or uh, fish oil pills, um, increase the efficacy of the SSRIs. So it, so people that are uh, maybe na- maybe don't need to take as much Prozac, or or in conjunction with the Prozac that they take, help out uh, with their current situation which is which is uh, interesting because in the case of depression 20 percent of cases uh according to huberman um which again it aped much of what sapolsky was saying in his lecture uh 20 percent of depression cases is just a case of low thyroid interesting but what that is is it's deregulation of uh of a hormone so but what else but he uh, something else he talked about was um the more stress, the more bouts of depression, the more stress, the more bouts of depression. So each wave of stress that you have to deal with makes you more and more vulnerable to, uh, to depression, whether you're predisposed or not. Okay. And some people are, some people, there's a, there's a gene, it's called the HTTLPR gene. It's a genetic predisposition that elevates the susceptibility to depression. Uh, the more you're exposed to, to stress. But um, but if you have low low thyroid, then uh, then 
genetically you're already kind of at a disadvantage so but part of it too is understanding the mechanisms in the recipes given um that'll give you a large amount of control over the behavior so if you understand why one thing is doing you know obviously you're not going to re entirely replace your ssris with just fish oil or vice versa uh, you've got to know kind of why you know one goes in before the other or one goes in conjunction with the other but um but let me let me let me let me pull away from this topic briefly um because <laughs> i was pretty busy this weekend so what i then on saturday so thursday was uh thursday was uh moon night friday was lex friedman talking to carl dyseroff saturday was huberman but saturday was, no excuse me today was Sunday was Huberman. I had to, Huberman, Huberman kind of tied it all together because it was, like I say, it was kind of a, a facsimile there of the lecture that uh, Sapolsky, Sapolsky was giving 12, 13 years ago on that YouTube video. But then I bounced on to a Mark Maron interview with Paul Rudd. <laughs> you know? And why not? And why the hell not? Because everybody loves Paul Rudd, right? The ageless wonder, Ant-Man. So he was, uh, of course, I don't really know him as Ant-Man because I don't get into the Marvel comics. I'm not, I'm not that guy, but I'm getting sucked into the Moon Knight thing. I'm going to be perfectly frank. I'm going to be perfectly frank. I get, I get it. <clears throat> Excuse me. That boy is a P.I.G. pig. But, um, but as I because Paul Rudd is like, he's like this, he's like a mainstay kind of a he's everywhere well he's in i think every judd apatow production ever made uh or connected to you mean you talk about anchorman you're talking about knocked up talk about this is 40 you're talking about uh 40 year old virgin um but then he did ant-man which was kind of out of like odd but um and I never even saw it, but I was listening to his interview or him being interviewed by Mark Marin when uh, not in a promotional effort because they didn't really they didn't really talk about Ant Man. Although time wise, the timeline would 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 deduce that that was what he was there for. But um, but it was very uh, illuminating because I, the more I listened to this guy, I realized he he and I had had. Several similarities. Uh, and it all kind of culminated into Ant-Man. Uh, because I, I too am a very small superhero. No. What it is, is um, he was, and I didn't realize this, he was raised, um, well, he's Jewish. And he was, uh, his parents are British Jews. Because his dad worked for TWA, so they moved around a lot. But he grew, uh, he was born... You say he was born, yeah, I think in London or England, and uh, his parents were British Jews. Is that odd? I don't know. I thought that was odd, but he was raised in a house that was kind of ambivalent towards religion. Um. So, you know, he had a bar mitzvah. They did. They didn't really go to a synagogue routinely by any means, 
but um, but because he was in uh, the airline business, uh, they did move around a lot. So we went from like London to like Kansas of all places because Can- I think the corporate headquarters at the time for TWA was in Kansas. So he so we lived in Kansas City. Kansas, not Kansas City, Missouri, although it's virtually the same thing. It's right there on the border. There's like a 10-mile interstate road that connects the two, and it's virtually, it's basically the same same town. But but in high school, he had a, um, he um, had a, he was just kind of a, well, again, he was, it was very, uh, there was a, a huge ambivalence towards religion. Like, it wasn't like, he, was, he wasn't anti-religious, but he wasn't practicing, very, which is very, very telling and very, very similar to my upbringing. But, but he also had an affinity for comics, like stand-up comics. He talked about Steve Martin. He talked about uh, like Jay Leno, watching guys like that. He said he went to uh, a Bill Hicks uh, show, which was crazy. Like to be in a room with only twenty other people and Bill Hicks, because you know Bill Hicks is like you got to seek out Bill Hicks. You don't just like Bill Hicks is dead now, but. Back in the day, he was a very niche comedian. Um, you know, he wasn't. It wasn't like a huge, like um, it wasn't an arena type act. Like he was small club type, but very legendary. But small club type, not not big arena like, not a Sam Kinison type presence. You know, this over the top. He was, you know, but to go see Bill Hicks, you have to seek out Bill Hicks. So, uh, but. He also, he also had a weird affinity for like David Letterman, and then instances of like Andy Kaufman when he was on David Letterman, which was always a weird. Like Andy Kaufman is like probably the greatest troll ever because everything was everything he did was kind of a put on, and uh, a lot of the times uh, on Letterman, like Letterman, because Letterman got it, like he was in on the joke, and matter of fact. Andy Kaufman, from what I read, let David Letterman in on the joke. He said, there's going to be a fight. I'm, I'm going to get in a fight, so just play along. Okay, and he would because he would, uh, like Andy Kaufman was just out there. Andy Kaufman was, of course, he, he, he made a name for himself on the show Taxi with like Tony Danza and Danny DeVito and, um, oh, oh, shit. Uh, the guy played Jim, um, the guy played, uh, oh, what the hell is his name from Back to the Future? He played Doc on Back to the Future. Um, he, was also, he was also in One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest. Just huge cast, huge. But Andy Coffin was like, he played Latke Gravitz. Hello, thank you very much. That's what he would do. He was like this weird, odd foreigner from some foreign country that uh, nobody recognized. But... But in real life, see, Andy Kaufman took a day job at a diner as a busboy uh, with the the presupposition that if his acting gig went south, he would always have that to fall back on as a busboy at a diner in New York. Okay, I got you. So when you go on Letterman, he had this weird phase in his life. Andy Kaufman had this weird phase and. uh which I I I had watched with with a certain amount of fascination, um, growing up. That uh, he was into wrestling, and then he started wrestling women, but primarily he was into just wrestling. And one of the guys, one of his foils, the guys that 
you know, one of the victims of his, of his, uh, thing was this guy, Jerry Lawler, who was a real, he was a real wrestler. And so he'd bring Jerry Lawler on to David Letterman and then he would just make fun of, you just put him down the whole time and call him like a hillbilly and make fun of him. And then until Jerry Lawler bit, like he's like, uh, he finally just, he did a fake wrestling move on Andy Coffin and started like physically beating him <laughs> on stage during the during the show, but it was all put on. Even Jerry Lawler was in on it. It was a put on. So Paul Rudd, he he kind of he'd watch this much the same way I would. Like you'd be like, like you kind of know it's got to be staged, but he was kind of like he got it. Like there was a huge there was something. If you were in on the joke, because not everybody was in on the joke. Like the live audience, probably most of them. We're not in on the joke. So they're like, what the fuck? Like, like a fight just broke out. And, but Paul Rudd got, he understood he got it. He kind of, so that transferred over into like, uh, he told, he said, uh, he told Mark Marin, he's like, uh, <laughs> one year he just, was, uh, like he was 16 or 17 or something. He went, he went trick or treating on the 19th of October instead of the 31st just so he could beat the rush and just <laughs> but he would bring a camera with him I think to film it to see kind of the reaction as far as what how people would address the situation like oh it's October 19th and trick-or-treat like <laughs> and, and uh it's so funny it reminds me of what my buddy John my buddy John who's a teacher um would do when he would go trick-or-treating uh, back in the day he would tell me he he would bring two masks he would be with a group of people like uh, you know, six, seven, eight people, who knows? And he would be the first guy up at the door with his first mask, get his candy. Then you go back to the back of the group so that six or seven other people would then go up, take their turn. And then he would have his other mask, put that on. And then he would get another round of candy, which is brilliant. But he told me to have face offs with home with people that, you know, uh, the homeowners would be like, Hey, I know you, you, you already got yours. He's like, no, no, I didn't. And he would ride that. He would ride it out. Like he would be adamant that he did not have two masks. He would, he would go down with that ship. And that's some pretty twisted shit, but that's very Andy Kaufman-esque, you know? It's very funny. Testing the limits of people, you know? Staging eccentric situations, you know? Like my buddy jo- uh, Jonathan, his friend, our, our mutual friend. Well, John was our mutual... Jonathan and I... Jonathan's the dude that was in the... In, in, always trying to learn you know, Blackbird from White, the White Album, the Beatles' White Album, in his dorm room, you know? He'd be the guy He'd be the guy at the camp, you know, when you're camping, you'd be, like, trying to play Kumbaya. You'd, like, you'd start, you go, bling, bling, oh, okay, wait, okay. Bling, 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 oh, hold on, wait. Bing, ding, 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 oh, okay, wait, hold on. He, he was that guy. He was the acoustic guitar guy. And, but Jonathan understood, uh, the whole Andy Kaufman thing too. And he and I would kind of pal around, uh, my fresh, freshman year, sophomore year, probably second year, my second year, maybe my third year, but we'd load up our golf clubs and we would go out. This is after I got, this is kind of when I retired from running and, 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 uh, so we would go out to the, the, the dunes out on the ocean where we knew that the Humboldt state team was doing hill repeats for training and we would treat it as the world's biggest sand trap bring our golf clubs and we'd be hitting golf golf balls right between there as they were doing 
you know, hill repeats. <laughs> and just trying to play through. This is odd shit, you know? So you get, like, so I'm, I'm already in bed with Paul. I get him. He gets it. I get it. And, um, but what was even more interesting was because my buddy Jonathan, he sucked me into like one of those one cent, like you get like, you know, 10 CDs or 50 CDs or 20 CDs for like one cent. He, he was one of those guys, even though he's a Christian, a born again Christian, he was a ruthless manipulator and he would, uh, take advantage of the one cent CD. So one day he's like, Hey, give me 10, give me 10 albums you want and, uh, I'll get it for you for one cent. I'm like, okay, whatever. So I got like, this is the worst shit ever. It was like, it was like uh, Warrant, Winger. <laughs> He's like, what the fuck is this? He's like, are you kidding me? This is what you're getting? Like he actually gave me a lecture on this. Like you can't really be serious. This is not what you want. I'm like, yeah. So, but Paul Rudd was the same. He's like, you know, back in the day, like <laughs> when in Kansas, when he's living in Kansas, everyone who was into like the, you know, well, what would be now the um, classics station, you know, you'd turn on like, it, 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 uh, it'd all be Rush, you know, fly by night away from here, or Kansas, you know, carry on my wayward son, there'll be peace when you are gone, you know, all that shit, all that, you know, the fucking, what they call fucking you know, classic rock, the classic rock station still exists. They're still playing the same Van Halen, same Kansas, not the state, the band, the prog rock band. Yes. My buddy Jonathan's way into yes. Matter of fact, in the Marin interview, <laughs> Marin's just like, I'm, I, I would just say no to yes, no to yes. And, and, and what was funny is like the teammates like that we still hung around with the runners and so forth on the team, they would be unrelentless, towards their disdain for Jonathan's progressive rock bands, like, yes, they would, you know, more, well, specifically, yes. Like, they'd, they would give him such shit. Yes, yes. They would fuck, just mercilessly torment him over that. He didn't give a fuck, but, but that's who was, he was into more of the expansive prog rock, you know, early Genesis, old Genesis, when Phil Collins played the drums and, you know, back in the 70s, old Genesis, you know, old Peter Gabriel, you know, all that shit. He was into Kansas. But <laughs> fucking Paul Rudd be listening to, like, Howard Jones, Depeche Mode. He said I was way into Depeche Mode, <laughs> which sounds so, like, very mainstream, naturally. And, the, and the, you know, they had their moments. Depeche Mode had their moments, you know. Um, Reach out and touch me, you know. Your own personal Jesus but um, so that was very uh, very parallel in regard to like my taste his taste and then the you know burgeoning uh, education uh, musical education that, that, that would soon transpire you know whether we wanted it or not but so so there was a lot of funny similar. It was very, very, uh, very interesting similarities. But, but it all culminated into this. Uh, I don't know. Um, into what he became now, and then, and then, and then, finally, you know, in the form of Ant Man. Now he, like I said, now we all ultimately are, uh, you know, 
sucked into these Marvel character situations now. Which brings me back to, you know, Moon Knight. This, which I think is, I think it's fab, I think it's phenomenal. Um, I think it's a great series. I think it's interesting. I think the connection to the Egyptian mythology, there's a weird connection to the, the pyramids. At the end of the second episode, he wakes up in Egypt. Um, but the exercise and disassociation, the multiple personalities. So all these guys, you know, all these writers, these Marvel characters or these Marvel writers, um, that was their deal. That was, um, they had these immense, immense backstories. Um, but it all added to the art of the, of the story of the character. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's fascinating the way that they used the mythology and the backstories and, but, but even more so the, uh, the mental illness aspect of it because uh, so so I'm going to leap back to towards the, the middle portion of the conversation in regard to the Carl Dyseroth interview where Dyseroth uh, talks about um, he's got a book out I guess he was promoting the book on Lex Friedman's podcast and uh, he was the book's called Projections and it's uh it has to do with um, depression, uh, anxiety, um, schizophrenia. And so there's this, uh, so again, there's like this common thread with all this. The schizophrenia, the uh, interconnectedness with the, um, the mental disassociate, the disassociative effects. Um, well, which is, which has the correlation with Huberman's, um, episode on depression in where he talks about ketamine and towards the end of his, towards the end of his podcast number 32 or 34, I think it was, uh, uh, the disassociative effect. So there's now we're leaping into the disassociative effect of mm, sanctioned pharmacological treatments in modern society, but also displaying them in full effect in disassociative behavior in Marvel comic characters like Moon Knight. So there, but the way Carl Dyseroth plays it out in his book is he runs several parallels to um he refers a lot to the book Finnegan's Wake which is excuse me written by James Joyce it was oh excuse me one of the most I mean it's one of the most complicated books that was ever written Finnegan's Wake was uh I mean it's almost unreadable but what makes it unre unreadable is um and this is where he, he, it gets really interesting is he talks about uh, James Joyce, who was this 
well, he himself probably suffered from some uh, a mild form of schizophrenia because it's hereditary and his daughter had it. But in the book Finnegan's Wake, and Finnegan's Wake was the last book he wrote, and it and, and it's it's a simple it's a simple take on a episode of a guy's wake, but it it's told in the most complicated manner possible, and he uses what uh, Carl Dyseroth referred to as uh, first uh, in a clang method. Uh, the the language is written in a clang, in a, in a form called a clang, which is like a clang, like if you were clanging like a big metal door, like a garage door, clang clang. The 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 uh, it's like a, you're echoing a, a sound, like the, the the language becomes an echo of uh, what you're trying to communicate. Okay, so it almost doesn't even make sense, but it uh, it's got a, a, an echo effect, and the other. Uh, f- the other way of uh, the other form of uh, of uh, literary kind of uh, device that he used was what was called neologism. Neologism, which is basically made up language. Like there's some words and some phrases in Finnegan's Wake that don't even make sense. But what it is is a, it's an example of the schizophrenia that he's communicating to the reader. So. Uh, like James Joyce is very hard to read, very hard to read. I talked about this a few episodes ago, about how I was supposed to write a paper on it on on his on his book Ulysses, which is considered one of the best pieces of literature of the twentieth century. But it's almost unre it's almost unreadable. Uh, but a lot of it has to do with these um, these clangisms, these uh, and these these literary devices that uh, that that that. <clears throat> Are almost geared to put you in a mindset more so than to more so than to use a traditional literary style or verbiage it's almost geared specifically to put you in a state of mind rather than to explain a scene if that makes sense because um like he goes on to talk about there's like a there's a weird positive correlation and connection to intelligence through certain um dysfunction and three of them that three of them that he brought up was uh, autism anorexia and bipolar disorder the bipolar disorder has a, a loose connection to the schizophrenia uh, but they've all got a weird positive correlation and connection to intelligence so there's like uh, so all's not lost. I mean, there's the the guys that were writing these Marvel comic characters, or guys like James Joyce that are writing these really complicated text to explain a very basic, simple scenario, were borderline like uh, the like the 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 genius and the madness kind of worked in lockstep like together in 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 confluence you know, together. And, uh, so that goes back to, oh God, even the, just the, just the, the, the disassociation of the, you know, the disassociative, uh, identity disorder that Moon Knight is, is displaying in the manner you know, specifically in the first episode where he's kind of, he closes his eye and wakes up and then he's in a whole other place and he's being put through all these situations that uh, he, you know, well, according to this, that, that, that 
you know, it's when it's revealed that he has these this disorder, uh, it alters, uh, and and that alters, and that the uh, the alter is known as uh, um, Stephen Grant, and then Jake Lockley originally manifested during his childhood. So these were other personalities, other subsequent identities uh, that didn't ultimately assume the Moon Knight identity, but but emerged at other points during his adulthood. That's, that's classic schizophrenia. But the disassociative element of that kind of goes back to, say, the use of ketamine. You know, ketamine and, the, and its disassociative effect in the treatment of schizophrenia. So, again, there's like this lockstep of genius and madness all at once, you know, in all this art, you know. And so, um, I mean, it's been around forever. It'll probably be around forever. I mean, it manifests itself specifically uh, in, in, in the arts uh, as a source of entertainment. So why would we eradicate it? Well, because it's very depressing. Um, this guy, D- uh, Dyserov, discovered a correlation. In, uh, according to Huberman, he said Carl Dyserov discovered a correlation in animals and humans in the cortex, specifically something called uh, level five. There was activation... It's called a, a level five activation. It was a state of disassociation from their grief and emotions, and don't feel bur- and don't feel burdened by their own emotions. So, um, so man, there's a lot of shit going on there. A lot of shit going on there. But, um, but a lot of it has to do with just basic. Um, chemical pathways, chemical pathways that are, 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 uh, either, uh, choked out or, um, or inhibited in some way, probably through, through a low producing thyroid or just, you're not getting enough norepinephrine. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about uh, the, the lady who directed sleepless in Seattle. That's Nora Ephron. I'm talking about norepinephrine, which is actually like adrenaline. Adrenaline is like, is the, uh, Adrenaline's like dopamine. Dopamine is like that spike you get. So you get your you get your baseline. Um, I guess the the one the one thing to really kind of latch onto as far as mental health goes is just to be um, to have a close relationship with your baseline dopamine levels because when you get that spike and that spike could come in any form if it's alcohol if it's drugs if it's coke if it's food if it's carbohydrates i mean the tryptophan in in um i was trying to explain this to my lady uh the tryptophan in the in turkey and and other like and carbohydrates are something that um depressives latch onto like we if you get into a state of depression you start finding you're eating more carbohydrates to chase that to chase that uh synthetically induced norepinephrine that adrenaline which is the you know like a dopamine the dopamine the dopamine will spike but as high as it spikes it's going to bury itself below your baseline too so you look at the baseline like a like a horizon like a flat line and then when you spike like if like coke's the worst meth and coke because uh it's 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 i mean it's no surprise that a lot of uh, ex-coke heads or ex-meth addicts all have uh, personality disorders 
uh, but that person uh, personality disorder uh, it only goes to uh, its manifestations in in the form of uh, depression because what you've done is you've elevated this huge spike this huge spike in your norepinephrine or your dopamine and what goes up must come down so not only do you go past now below your baseline but you're you bury that thing you create as high of uh, as high of peak as you create you create that low of a valley so what are we left with well well you're trying to find that happy balance aren't you and that's the trick so and what it all has to do with uh paul rudd or ant-man or moon knight or dr carl dyseroff or andrew huberman or lex friedman or Mark Marin, or me, or you, is, uh, well, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know. I, uh, I pride myself on, um, the, the mere knowledge that, uh, the only thing I'm certain of is that I'm uncertain of everything. <laughs> but let me give a shout out to Moon Knight. Go see it. That's a fucking great show, but it shines a light on disassociation of what of what we now use ketamine for. I mean ketamine is is our vehicle for disassociative identity disorder. You are removed from your when you take ketamine or when you take psilocybin mushrooms, you kind of step out of your existence for a minute there. Um and there's more severe forms of that too, dimethyltryptamine. That's another one. I mean you literally like your soul leaves your body uh, according to people who have taken DMT dimethyltryptamine but uh it's just fascinating though that uh all these you know it's it's we only stigmatize it now because we know more about it but we also uh looking back if you really take a deep dive it's it's prevalent in all of our arts and our movies and our you know like a disney it's a featured disney film it's uh, you know you're watching it take shape you're watching you're watching disassoci- disassociative identity disorder in full display in um in a disney series in some of the greatest literature of the 20th century in ulysses and finnegan's wake you know this uh you know this these strange literary devices that uh, were tapped into by a schizophrenic i mean james joyce is probably schizophrenic did we know it at the time probably not I mean, you'd have, you know, this was uh, also very close to the same time as Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud was a big, a big fan of, uh, you know, he was the father of psychoanalysis. And uh, so he, he probably relates a lot of it to wanting to, uh, you know, sleep with your mother and kill your father or some crazy shit. But, uh, but in essence, it's really just uh, managing those levels of uh, norepinephrine your dopamine and not not letting it get too low don't let it get too low bro so anyway that's uh that that's the episode for today that uh that hurt my brain to talk about um so um that's about all i got for you all right so i'm talking at you later arrivederci babies Thank you.